Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And just as a reminder before we get into our episode, uh, that if you have the will and the way, the means, the opportunity to give to what we're doing here, you can go to the Give tab on our uh, website, which is onscript.study, and you'll find um, all the instructions for how to do so. It's really easy. Um, Also, I want to say a special thank you to Ed Hatkey for producing each episode that you listen to. We send Ed the files. He makes it sound really good. So thank you so much, Ed, and we really appreciate the work you do. Okay, let's get on with this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to OnScript. My guest today is John D. Levinson, Alfred A. List Professor of Jewish Studies at Harvard Divinity School. And John is the, a well-known author of, of quite a few books and that you've probably heard of, Creation and the Persistence of Evil, Inheriting Abraham, the Legacy of the Patriarch in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, The Death of and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, The Love of God, Divine Gift, Human Gratitude, and Mutual Faithfulness in Judaism, and the book we're discussing today, Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel, the Ultimate Victory of the God of Life, which was was a National Jewish Book Award winner, uh, which is a pretty big deal. Um, and I'm here with Drew. Hey, Drew. Hello there. And uh, we're John, we're really glad to have you back on the podcast. You've been on before. Um, it, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy appearing with you people. Yeah. and You're very... Uh, perceptive oh well that's kind and uh, especially in the people you invite to speak I, I I couldn't agree more and and what some people might not know is that this is actually your third time on the podcast uh, the first time was when I rec- I don't know if you remember this when I recorded the interview with you and then I I forgot to hit record do you remember that oh, I remember that yeah yeah the bad news is then we did it over again and you didn't forget. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I I was always so impressed by that because I got to the end of the interview and I looked down and I realized I hadn't hit the record button. And, and I said to you, I'm not sure I captured all that. And you said, how much, how how much did you (laughs) not capture? And I said, well, all of it. And he said, no problem. Let's do it again. That was your it was your instant reaction. So I've always um, it it was owing purely to ego. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in any case, I really appreciate that, and we're we're thrilled to have you back on. And it's fun to talk about the topic of resurrection. And the way we're going to do this interview is um, is present to you a number of myths around the resurrection that uh, your book is addressing, and let you kind of respond to those with uh, with some myth-busting. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. All right, so let's just get right into it. And the first one is, according to the Hebrew Bible, a person dies and is permanently dead. No part of the self survives, whether conscious or or the soul. And um, is is that a myth, or or do you, do you give that an affirmative? 
You know, uh, that's a very complicated question. On the one hand, it's not an inaccurate statement as far as it goes. That is to say, individuals, for most of the Hebrew Bible, as individuals, die and are buried. Uh, and uh, maybe there's a memory of them and whatever, but uh, you don't see them as agents acting with personalities. Uh, on the other hand, there is this promise of life uh, that pervades the Hebrew Bible, a promise of survival for the entire human race in the story of Noah, uh, so that the death of individuals does not end or cancel the promise to the entire race, the divine promise that's based on uh, God's uh, own uh, credibility. There is the promise of life and a future and land uh, for the people of Israel. Uh, that, too, uh, is not canceled by the death of individual Israelites. Uh, and uh, there are also texts in which some people seem not to die. Most famously is Enoch in uh, Genesis uh, 5 and uh, Elijah around uh, uh, 2 Kings 2, uh, where arguably you could, argue, you could say neither of them actually died, but somehow were absorbed, were, to, were subsumed by God, were taken up. Uh, that is, uh, that, that those would be exceptions. But there are a lot of hymnic affirmations of the Bible, affirmations in hymns like the Song of Hannah or the uh, uh, Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 that speak of God as revivifying, as bringing the dead back to life, or bringing people up from the netherworld, from Sheol. And uh, all those things constitute serious qualifications on the claim that people simply die and that's the end of them. And then when, by the time you get uh, towards uh, Hellenistic period, late Second Temple Judaism, you certainly have some sort of expectation, apocalyptic, eschatological expectation of resurrection from the dead in uh, a place like, uh, like uh, Daniel 12. Uh, that many who lie in the dust will in fact uh, arise and then there'll be some sort of judgment, and some end up in uh, eternal life, and some end up in, uh, in uh, degradation and putrefaction or whatever. So by the time you're in the, certainly the second century BCE, maybe probably even earlier than that, you do have a, a kind of a expectation in certain circles in Judaism of a final resurrection of the dead as part of God's establishment of justice and the kingdom of God on earth. So I would say it's, it's, it's a true statement as far as it goes, but it, over, it misses a great deal of the, uh, of the affirmation of life. When In the title of the book I call The Ultimate Victory of the God of Life. It misses that uh, in a number of places in the Hebrew Bible. In, in Psalm 49, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, it says, uh, When we look to, at the wise, they die. Fool and dolt perish together and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. So, I mean, you could, you could read that and, and, and say, well, it sounds like people, you know, when they, when they die, that the common conception was that they're just in the ground forever and that's, that's it. So, so even in, in passages like that, would you say that, like, that's just not the full picture, or is it, or is it just varying beliefs in reflected? I, th I, I think there are varying beliefs in the Hebrew Bible. I would hesitate to generalize any one and say that's the norm, that's what Israel thought, when in fact what we mean is uh, certain segments of Israel that are reflected in the Hebrew Bible thought that. Uh, 
and there's a lot of variation within the Hebrew Bible. But just opening up my Bible here, and I look at that same Psalm 49, I notice that uh, in Psalm uh, 15, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 15 or 16, actually, in the uh, in the Hebrew it's 16, in the English it's 15, I see the NRSV translation is, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now this is very interesting. He will take me. Taking is what God does to uh, Enoch in, in uh, Genesis 5. And so on the one hand, you have this affirmation, uh, everyone dies, their graves are their homes forever, etc. But then the psalmist says his own voice, but God will ransom my soul, for the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now, what does that refer to? Does that mean he won't die? He'll never die? He will, he will die, but not go to Sheol? Uh, on the assumption, which I think is true, that, that not everybody uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible was thought to, uh, to uh, have Sheol as their ultimate destination. So even there, it's a little more unclear. I think a book like Kohelet or Ecclesiastes, I, I don't think he thought there was any survival after death any personal survival of death. I think he's a little unusual, as he is in many areas, in that particular uh, perspective. But I'd be careful about overgeneralizing throughout the, throughout the Hebrew Bible. Uh, in general, though, I think the power of God was thought to be greater than the power of death, than the power of, of uh, death personified, uh, whether it's Sheol or, or whatever. And I think the standard statement, people just die and go to the grave, that's it, uh, misses that uh, affirmation of the power of God and narratives in which that affirmation actually is, is realized. Okay, uh, this is Drew now speaking. Um, so myth number two that we were thinking of was um, that this destination of the righteous versus the wicked. And it sounds like, um, I, we should also give you credit, this book was written probably at least 12 to 14 years ago, uh, if it was 2006, which I assume it was written before that. Uh, it was actually written yes, before it appeared. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As, yeah. I may have done the foot. I may have done the footnotes first, and then tried to figure out a text yeah. that would surround that or appear on top a, of that to be appropriate. That but seems like yes. it's a common strategy yeah. these days. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things you're trying to do in the book is just create conceptual space for the idea that hey, there there is a hope. You, uh, you're very wary uh, to outline exactly what happens to people uh, uh, that maybe don't go to Sheol. But uh, there, so the common myth is, uh, and I should say for a lot of our listeners. Or for some of them, they might not even know that this is common amongst Hebrew Bible studies, that um, the idea is not that you go to heaven or hell, because uh, you'll hear Christians asking this question, which I'm sure they've asked you. It's like, um, But the common perception... I've had, some, I've had some tell me to go to hell, but <laughs> they usually don't ask. You should, you should get them to clarify whether they mean Hades or Gehenna. Um, yeah, a good point. So, uh, but this idea that if, okay, if Sheol is not the destination of everybody, so what differentiates who goes to Sheol and who doesn't, and then what what do those two existences look like in various texts of the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, yeah, another excellent question. The standard thing you see in handbooks about the religion of Israel and about the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament is. When people die, they go to a dark, dang, God-abandoned netherworld called Sheol. Uh, there are people, and I'm, I'm not the only one, Philip Johnston wrote a book to this uh, effect, that question that. That is to say, uh, Sheol appears, I think, uh, something like 88 times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it usually appears in emotionally charged contexts, like that Psalm 49 that we just uh, talked about. Uh, and... Uh, 
uh, by and large, uh, uh, my problem with it is that what do you make of people like Abraham uh, or Jacob uh, or Job who are explicitly said to die at a, at a, at a ripe old age or to, to see their descendants to the third or fourth generation and to be buried with their fathers or they lay with their fathers? Uh, what are we to say about someone like Moses who envisions not his future generations of his family, but he has a glimpse of the holy land into which he won't enter, the promised land into which he will not enter, and then he is buried. Uh, are we to think that the author, when he wrote that, the author of those verses, when he wrote that, thought that the people he's writing about, as he wrote, were actually in some dank, dark, miserable netherworld? Does he think that those, that statement that they die happy, content, full of days, and so forth, like Abraham or Job, whose death notices are very similar, that he actually thought that that was, oh, that's how they were at the moment they died, and then they had a rude awakening, or opposite of an awakening, and found themselves in the underworld, uh, totally cut off from God, and miserable, and, and emaciated, etc., etc. I find that impossible to believe. I think within the Bible there is a distinction uh, between uh, those who uh, die and are buried with their fathers or lay with their fathers and those who don't. I think the distinction is those who die what I call a fortunate death or those who die an unfortunate death. A fortunate death means that they die ideally at a, a ripe old age. They have, they have reproduced. They see their descendants or even the third or fourth generation ideally. Uh, they do not die violently. And they're given, and they don't die outside the graces of God, and they're given a, a, a decent burial. Uh, the alternative, those who die prematurely, those who die heartbroken, those who die violently, those who are not buried appropriately, those who are, who are separated from their family unit, they're thought to go to Sheol. I think you can even find on a lexical level that these are two distinct complexes. The assumption everybody goes to Sheol, I think, misses that distinction. So I think there is a difference between, there, there are two different uh, types of death. Now here's where it gets complicated, as, as if what I've been saying so far is, is not complicated. But what co gets complicated is we naturally think, certainly Christians think, and to a large extent Jews think, in terms of a dichotomy you might call heaven and hell. And if you think Sheol is hell, which is not a bad translation of it. If you think Sheol is hell, then you think that these other people must have gone to heaven. I don't know what the author means when he says God took uh, uh, Enoch, or what psalmists, like the psalmist in uh, Psalm 49, thinks when he says God will take him. I don't know what he thinks, what he thinks the destination is, but I don't see a description of heaven. I don't see this distinction of a paradise corresponding with that netherworld. The way I put it in the book is, Sheol is the continuation of the unfulfilled life. Because the person has died childless, uh, heartbroken, in grief, in sin, cut off from God, violently, whatever, he goes to Sheol. The person whose life is, is, is fulfilled, uh, his death is, is the end of a fulfilled life. If Sheol is the destination of the unfulfilled life, it's a continuation of the unfulfilled life, the fulfilled life doesn't have a continuation because it's fulfilled. It's now come to its end. And, and I think that's the, the majority view in the Hebrew Bible, that certain people's lives come to an end of the fortunate death 
And where they are afterwards or whatever is, you see very, very little about that. There are a few little little texts and some of the people hyper-focus on uh, that suggest uh, uh, some other world or whatever they are, or whatever Samuel coming up from the grave in First Samuel uh, 28 and so forth. But by and large, uh, uh, I, I think there's a distinction there. It's not the distinction of heaven and hell. So <clears throat> if you say, well, how could a person, an innocent person, whatever, go to Sheol? It's not exactly a moral judgment. If they're brokenhearted, they die prematurely or whatever, they, they could go to Sheol. It's not exactly morality. It's not a, by the time you have a, a developed doctor of resurrection of the dead in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, there's a notion of a moral judgment there. But uh, I think this, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, I don't think it's primarily a moral dichotomy, but I do think there is a dichotomy there in terms of, uh, of the nature of people's yeah. deaths. I think I was just thinking, I don't know if you've ever put this in conversation with this other Second Temple Jewish literature called, we call it the New Testament. But uh, yeah. I actually have, but yeah. They, uh, yeah. I've even seen movies. I've even seen and movies probably about very it. bad ones. Yeah, 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 <laughs> the, yeah very um, bad. Yeah, yeah. but I, it reminds me as you were speaking about it, just the uh, the language in the end of Jesus' uh, eschatological dis- discourse in Luke, and you also get a parallel of it in Matthew of uh, when he talks about you know one these these people will be taken away as in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And, and his disciples actually ask in the Lucan account, well, taken where? <laughs> and he just says, where right, the yeah, vultures yeah. gather, that's where the corpses will be, you know. Uh, so this idea that people are taken to various places in this final judgment seems to uh, riff off of this a bit as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's um, right. I yeah. wonder, because um, you also do something uh, in the book, which I don't think many people will, will have ever thought of, is you push Sheol as well conceptually up into the living, uh, the realm of the living, so that um, uh, sickness at the end of life or uh, – I, I, well, I'd be interested to hear what all you think counted, whether emo- – if you can have emotional Sheol and physical Sheol. Uh, and I'd also be – I don't think you addressed it in the book, but um, can people create Sheol in their lives by oppressing other people? Can you, can you, can you bring that misery into other people unto death? Is, is that part of the whole continuum? You know, it's interesting. I think of a text like uh – uh, Genesis 37, where Jacob has been tricked into believing that his beloved son, the firstborn of his own, the only wife he ever loved, which is Rachel, has been ripped apart by a wild animal. That's what the brothers have tricked uh, Jacob into believing about Joseph. And Jacob says he's going to go to Sheol. He refused to be comforted. He's just going to go down to Sheol. And he seems to be in a state of mourning until, in fact, he hears that Jacob, that Joseph is, is alive. And then his spirit returns to him, and, and he, he, he comes back to life. Um, I think in some of the Salbas who describe themselves as being in Sheol, or having gone into Sheol and come back, I don't think those are texts literally about a physical resurrection of the dead. I think that, that the, again, Sheol is the continuation of the unfulfilled life. It's a continuation of the last stages of, a, let's say, of a terminal patient. And the person may be terminal for emotional reasons. The person may be, as I said earlier, heartbroken. And a person who is heartbroken or severely depressed or uh, very, very ill with a terminal disease, uh, the continuation of that is simply Sheol, that life ends, uh, but the person at some level exists in this this uh, uh, emaciated, uh, un- intensely unpleasant uh, existence. So I think there is an emotional or physical dimension. The way I put it, <coughs> excuse me, the way I put it in the book is that... Um, I don't think the Bible has much of a sense of what we might call minor illness. Uh, I, I always wonder, people in, in, in the Bible, do they ever like, catch a cold? 
right? In other words, when someone is sick, when someone's chole in the Bible, just about every time he's about to die. When people describe themselves as being sick, you get the feeling they're at the end. They're, they're really at the end. Uh, I, think I think they thought of severe illness as already manifesting a shoal. You already, as you might say in English, has got a foot in the grave. It's like that you're already, uh, in some degree, in Sheol. And therefore, I'm not surprised that when a, a doctrine, a belief, eschatological expectation, probably a better term the doctrine, in the resurrection of the dead comes about, that it comes about as part of this apocalyptic transformation where the blind will see, the, the deaf and, and non-speaking deaf will hear and sing, the lame will dance, and the, and the dead will rise. I think those different bodily ailments are all thought in some degree of as manifesting death. But then again, in the power of God, they can be, and the belief is they will be, ultimately reversed, and the person will be recreated, and recreated as a healthy, full-functioning human being. So I think there is some sense that, that you can be in Sheol in this life, or send some other person into Sheol, I think to some degree that's what uh, what they thought uh, the Joseph's brothers had done to to Jacob. Yeah, it seems like one of the things that you're you're doing in you know, throughout this book is is reconfiguring, remapping some of our uh, polarities that we operate with. When maybe as Christians or as uh, contemporary Jews, we we read the Bible. Um, so maybe on the one hand, we have this polarity of heaven and hell, and you're kind of remapping that, or we have this polarity of righteous and wicked corresponding to Sheol or not Sheol, um, or even, as you're talking about now, um, the even the polarity between life and death. And and I found that really helpful is is that you were saying the the sharpest dividing line is between a healthy, fulfilling, a fulfilled life and illness. And and once you cross over onto the illness... I was going to yeah. say, and also that fulfilled life, an awful lot of biblical texts, involve being in relationship with God, being in dialogue or communion or whatever with God, and, and sensing or being in His uh, sanctifying presence. That's why some of these texts, uh, uh, focusing on the temple, stress life, or describe that temple, that, 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 that access to the temple in Jerusalem... As uh, as life forevermore, uh, but I, but I no. That's you. I mean that's I, that's a helpful reminder too because I, I really appreciate how um, it, your description of the opposite of Sheol is, if anything, in the Hebrew Bible, it's the temple. So the which I think I can't remember if it was in this book or another one where you call it the the realm of temporary immortality. Is that is that um, is that your phrase? It sounds like a wonderful phrase. I can't remember whether it's mine or not, but it's so good, I'll take credit <laughs> okay. for it. Uh, but but the idea being that, like, if you're in the temple, you're in the realm of life, and and that that's that's a right. kind of corresponding opposite to to Sheol. Well, and I think it it takes a text like Job and it that is already dramatic uh, on its own rights and makes it even more dramatic. Uh, his progeny and his flourishing are completely cut off from him. Uh, and then people are waxing el eloquently about why this might be the case, or ineloquently, actually, as the case may be. Drew, do you think it's time for a speed round? Yeah, we at least got to get one in here. Y you want me to go? Yeah. All right. I got some questions for you, John. If you're up for it, we're gonna. These are gonna okay. go fast and furious. Sure. Uh, you can you can 
say more, but uh, we'd appreciate it if you say less for the tawdry details hanging. I really have very little to say, so I'll be glad to say, to say okay. less. Um, have you ever made a student cry? Not in my presence. I'm, sh- I'm sure many have run out of the class uh, screaming and crying, and uh, probably uh, when they get their grades or see my comments on their papers, I can't, rec- I can't recall a student crying in class, but there's always a first time. If we were to consult the uh, the rabbinic sages, would they have considered um, footnotes or endnotes more righteous? Uh, that's a very good question. I imagine they would prefer footnotes because they say you should always quote something b'shem omoro. You should quote it in the name of the person who said it. So the farther the, the note is from the actual text, uh, the, the less you're uh, obeying that, uh, that uh, stricture. I think we all said amen to that and let the uh, listener note that this book has endnotes. Uh, okay. Yes, I, that, that's what the publishers yeah. want these days, and they want fewer yes. and fewer of them. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what article or maybe position or book uh, has caused you the most grief in the uh, academic world? Position uh, or book has caused me the most grief. Uh, I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, I once wrote an article for Commentary Magazine around 1999, I think it was titled The New Enemies of Circumcision, and I got some uh, some uh, gentle hate <laughs> mail from some of the enemies of circumcision. Uh, my, uh, my essay called Exodus and Liberation that appears in a book I, I wrote with the ungainly title, titled The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and Historical Criticism, uh, really uh, ticked off a lot of liberation theologians and people who think like liberation theologians because I said that the the Exodus is not primarily about liberation from slavery, and uh, it really is not the Exodus not manifest a uh, uh, a uh, principled dislike of slavery at all, and uh, that that uh, certain circles that was well received, other circles it caused great uh, gnashing of teeth. I, I can only imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. If uh, Ken Burns made a documentary about your life which I'm sure you have something to say about, uh, who would he interview? I don't know. Probably my enemies. I mean, I think uh, he would have probably no problem finding people, people who dislike me. I'm trying to think, does anybody like me? I don't know. They might find, he might find somebody like that. Probably have to look quite hard for it. Yes, I think most of the time she likes me. I think that's probably, that would be a good, that would be a good person to interview. Really quickly, could you give us a thumbnail sketch of what you think the state of biblical theology is today in, in academia? Well, I've already described Sha'ol, so that those two uh, answers would overlap. Uh, here, here, here's what I personally think. Uh, this is not a popular position. I think the state of academic, critical, historical, critical, biblical studies is in large measure a function of the state of vitality, the state of religious faith and religious commitment and religious involvement in the society at large. So far as I can see from my amateurish uh, standpoint, the uh, we're now in a period of uh, rather uh, intense secularization, and uh, a lot of biblical scholars uh, imagine that their prof- their profession and their field will still be in the curriculum and st- will still be funded and the positions will still be there in spite of the secularization, many of them, in fact, contribute to the secularization, and, and, and more than a few spend the time trying to debunk the Bible, or trying to debunk the idea of theology and religious commitment, religious faith, and so forth. I think that is uh, sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. So in that sense, I, I think in general, uh, the current situation is not good in, in biblical studies, and I think that uh, it's not good in the humanities, 
uh, largely because of various modes of study, various hermeneutics that are debunking, that are Marxist or neo-Marxist, uh, that uh, are deliberately anti-idealistic uh, and spend their time engaging in a hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, the question is, why should people study this stuff long enough to get suspicious of it? Uh, and if, in fact, uh, there's no reason to bring those people into the classroom in the first place, because uh, the literature you're studying is all racist and sexist and homophobic and transphobic and anti-Semitic and I don't know what else, the authors didn't floss, whatever it is, uh, if, that's, if that's the case, do you really expect students to want to devote themselves to the study of this material long enough to find that out? And so in that sense, I think the humanities in general and biblical studies and religious studies in, in particular are in, in actually in very bad shape because of the particular debunking ideologies that they have, I, I think, uh, rather recklessly or thoughtlessly bought okay. into. I, uh, one more question for you, and it's actually to get a question from you. Um, so uh, Matt and I are going to be interviewing uh, Robert Alter uh, in two weeks. Uh, so I, sure. I wondered what question you would want us to ask him. I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, that's a massive undertaking. That book, I've uh, I've glanced at it. I haven't uh, haven't read it. Uh, I uh, I guess I would ask him uh, what drove you to translate the parts of the Bible, which is probably most of them, that are not of great literary merit, a great aesthetic merit. Uh, it's a very large part of the Bible. Is lists lists of names, lists of animals, lists of whatever. Uh, what what drove you even to translate that? Uh, what, what was your passion for this, uh, apart from the aesthetic, apart from the Bible as literature? I think he probably will have an interesting answer. That's a really good question. Thanks. Okay, here's another myth, um, which I believe you address in the book. The ancient Israelites believed in divinized ancestors. Yeah, I think that uh, you have to make a distinction between ancient Israel and the Hebrew Bible. Ancient Israel is something we recover through archaeology, partly through the Hebrew Bible, through epigraphic texts, through comparative studies. Uh, it's much larger. and involves a much larger range of people, a much larger range of beliefs and practices than make it into the Hebrew Bible or that are approved of in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, I really don't see evidence for divinized ancestors. I don't. I don't see the people um, presenting offerings to their ancestors and so forth and so on. Uh, to the extent that ideas like that come up, they're prohibited. They come up as as negative models of behavior. Now, you don't prohibit something unless it's around, right? You don't. You don't. You don't uh, uh, say something. Don't do this if no one ever thought of doing it. So I, I don't have much doubt that such ideas were around in the Northwest Semitic world and in ancient Israel in, in general. And I have nothing wrong with historians of religion reconstructing it. But I think there are very, very few biblical texts that could be plausibly read as supporting the idea that there were divinized ancestors uh, uh, that, that the authors of those texts continued to believe in and to affirm. Okay. Um, so, uh, so the... The command to honor your your father and mother has no kind of origin in that that idea. If it has an origin in that idea, I think that's way in the past. I think the father and mother are talking about are adults, uh, maybe elderly. I think the people being addressed are adults, not children. Although it applies to children, uh, uh, I think the notion is you take care of your uh, your parents in their uh, old age. Uh, the idea you take care of them uh, long after the dead. 
Uh, I doubt that. I doubt. I doubt that there's any reason to read it that way. Are, are you ready to uh, dive right back into a speed round? I, I'll, I'll dive anytime you want, as long as there's no water in the pool. Okay. <laughs> well, don't dive into an empty pool. Um, yeah, that's a big problem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Isaiah fifty-three is that an individual, nation, or neither? Uh, I don't know. Uh, nobody else knows. Or I should say a lot of people know. A lot of people know it's an individual. A lot of people know it's a nation. A lot of people think it's the the the, the prophet himself speaking about himself in his own uh, prophetic career. Uh, I I don't know. I think that it's uh, it's. Uh, if I had to guess, I would guess it's the nation of Israel. Uh, but I don't actually know that. <laughs> the house of Hillel or Shammai. Well, of course, most of the literature we have about Shammai comes from sources that are highly uh, sympathetic to and derived from the House of Hillel. So, uh, being a contrarian, I think there's something to be said to uh, uh, retrieving and uh, and vindicating uh, Shammai. But of course, the way Talmudic dialectic works, the way rabbinic Judaism works, you have uh, you have to have two positions. In a sense, are arguing with each other and sharpening each other and keeping each other on their toes. So, if you tried to eliminate one or the other, you would not have rabbinic Judaism. Okay. During dissertation defenses, are you typically the good cop or the bad cop? Uh, often, I'm the bored cop, uh, but uh, I I would say uh, I probably uh, I like to ask uh, uh, questions that will get an interesting discussion going. I usually am not out to get the student. I probably wouldn't be on the committee. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be the director if if I weren't sympathetic in some measure to what the student's trying to do. So I guess I'm closer to the good cop. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? I think you might have touched on this already. Uh, other than those various uh, myths, I think that uh, the notion that the truth of the Bible is limited to its author's immediate historical horizon, uh, is, uh, deconstructs the Bible into a sequence of discrete messages or whatever worldviews that are incompatible with each other. In that sense, I'm sympathetic with the sort of hermeneutical move of someone like the late Brevard Childs, who said, yes, we have to pay attention to the historical authors, the historical documents, try to disentangle them as far as we can. But that uh, the uh, assembled texts and the uh, growth of the scripture and the final canonical version uh, also has to be given its due. So, in other words, the final version of the Bible says things that no individual in it uh, ever said. The sum is large; the, the, the whole is larger than the sum of the parts, and uh, that's what redaction and canonization uh, produce. And I think too much of biblical scholarship is so. Uh, historicistic, that it just can't reckon with that dimension. And therefore, people say that Childs was a fundamentalist and that sort of thing, which is really very far from the truth. The truth is, if he were a fundamentalist, he wouldn't be able to reconstruct a trajectory uh, of recontextualizations of Scripture uh, through time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Amen to that. Uh, What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? well, you probably have my bibliography handy. You could just read them all off. I mean, you know, uh, the most significant one in the last 50 years. I don't know. Having just mentioned Childs, I, I think that a, a case can be made for his introduction. It is an introduction, and therefore it has a kind of reference work, introduction to the Old Testament scripture would certainly be a, a one that I would think of. 
Another book I would think of in New Testament would be Paul and Palestinian Judaism by E.P. Sanders. Uh, uh, that, that, that should get people uh, started. Uh, another book that I've, I very much like, since you mentioned uh, Robert Alter and the uh, literary approach, would be Mayor Sternberg, uh, The Poetics of Biblical Narrative. Those would all be, I think, very important uh, books about the last 50 years, but I'm sure there are others I'm just not thinking of at the moment. Okay. Um, how do you solve a problem like Maria? I don't know. I did have, what is that? That was in The Sound of Music. I used to have a cassette of that. I used to listen to a time and again in my car, a cassette. Then I bought a new car last year that does not have a cassette player. So I feel in many ways I've been in Shaol for like the last year and a half. I played that cassette so many times over and over again. Now, the people tell me that it actually got frayed, but I still listen to it. Uh, there are, uh, I, I guess there are ways you can download music into your phone or whatever. But, uh, that's you know, right I here. I, I don't want to get in. I've never been tremendously into this high-tech stuff. I mean, I'll give you an example of how low-tech I am. I only yesterday found out that I can use my AM radio in the afternoon. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's mislabeled. It's like the fat-free foods. You know, they charge me for them. I know. It's just know. it's false advertisement, yeah. AM radio. Turn on at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You can hear it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. A, lo- a lot of our listeners are in shock right now. Um, and, or quickly, you know, scanning the AM uh, dials, which I'm sure they are. See if uh, it works. See if it works. Yeah. So, so which, uh, you know, other than Sound of Music soundtrack, what other tape was quite frayed? Oh, I don't know. I used to have one of Beethoven's Ninth. I'm really not, uh, I'm really not a musical person. I did. Uh, I used to listen to the choral part of Beethoven's Ninth to, uh, to cheer myself up. Uh, which uh, most of them didn't work, uh, but uh, I don't know. It'd be hard to say. I don't. I, I really not. I'm really not a, a very uh, musical type person. Um, in in quick summary, what's your what's your kind of typical word flow or workflow when you're working on a writing project? You know, when I did Inheriting Abraham, uh, the uh, series editor said we would like it to be fifty five thousand words. So I did a lot of reading and thinking and this and the other, taking notes. And then I said, uh, well, it's time to sit down and write. That's the hardest thing as a scholar, to decide when to stop reading and start writing, because there are always going to be more things to read. You will never exhaust on any topic, no matter how small it is in biblical studies. You're almost always going to find uh, a thousand articles. By the time you finish uh, your chapter about that subject, there'll be a thousand and one or a thousand and ten. So at a certain point I sat down, I started typing, and I said, you know what, if I, if I could get 550 words, right, I'll be one percent of the way through this book. It's supposed to be 55,000 words. Actually, Inheriting Abraham ended up being more like 95,000 words. Uh, so, I, I, to me, the hardest part is the reading, the taking notes, and the outlining a chapter. Once I have all that done, the writing I actually find to be uh, uh, rather fun, and I do an enormous amount of stylistic uh, polishing. When I was a freshman in college, I read uh, something by Bertrand Russell. I think it was his, it may have been his autobiography. But in there, it said, people ask me, why do I, uh, how do I write so well? Because he was a very fluent, uh, eloquent writer. He said, the answer is, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Just keep rewriting. Keep polishing, polishing, polishing. And uh, But the hard part is is getting to the bottom of the bibliography because you don't want some reviewer to say, oh, here's this obvious book that you didn't know about. But on almost on everything I've ever written afterwards, I find uh, there is uh, there is some major book I didn't know about or should have checked or didn't think was major, and I see it is major. The other thing I find is when I first get a copy of the book in the mail, 
and I'm very excited. I, my book is finally out, and I open up the wrapper, and I open it up, and my eye always lands on a typo. I don't care how many times I proofread, other people proofread, copy editors, my eye always lands on a typo. Can you explain that? That that must be a divine providence. That, that was my very first book. That's exactly what happened. Uh, first page I opened to. Is I that what happened? Maybe that was right everybody. in the middle of the page, too. It, it might, it, that, might be, that might be universal. It's to, it's to punish, punish us, I think, for our hubris of being so proud of what we produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I found one right in my uh, table of contents. Oh, that's bad news. That's, that's, <laughs> that's very bad news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that you said that reviewers often say, like, you didn't touch on this book or that book, which I think a lot of reviewers just do because it's easy to review books that way. But do you think it's a function as well of, like, you tackle large, big picture projects and and not many people do that yeah i don't know if it's a strength or weakness on my part most of the narrow gauge uh, topics increasingly bore me um and i've always had this idea that i as uh, franz rosenzweig once said i i want to answer those questions that people actually ask Uh, so a subject like uh uh, what's the the Hebrew Bible teaching on resurrection of the dead, if any? Well, that I thought was an interesting sort of uh, topic, so I wrote Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel. Uh, but it's true that the, the scope and scale of the work will open you up increasingly to uh, a uh, to, to that sort of critique. If you find some narrative written just one word that appears somewhere in Second Chronicles, you probably can can have a, you'll have a much uh, narrower bibliography, and you'll be less. You on the one hand, you'll be less vulnerable to that criticism. You overlook something. On the other hand, you will be vulnerable to the criticism of who cares. Um, I think the last myth we want to talk about. Um that you address quite a bit throughout the book uh, is this issue that this is all late development, uh, that resurrection and personal immortality and um, uh, these, these all come in Hellenistic Judaism and make their way into New Testament thought and beyond. Um, and I wonder if, um, especially the issue of per- personal immortality, where you shift that over into this kind of uh, genealogical sense um, of uh, perdurance of the family, so, A, uh, is this late? Uh, and B, um, how does the family counterbalance immortality? Yeah, that's, uh, those are very good questions. I think the, the general expectation of a resurrection of the dead as part of the eschatological scenario, what will eventually transpire, is uh, relatively late in the history of the Hebrew Bible or the history of uh, biblical Israel. Uh, but, as I say, there are these texts that are much, much earlier, like the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, or the Song of Hannah in First uh, uh, Samuel 2, or a number of Psalms, that do assert God's power to raise the dead. As a matter of fact, they assert the, the raising of the dead as uh, a, a prime example of God's uh, power. Uh, so, in that, in that, and then the various texts in which people describe Israel probably themselves as having come back from Sheol, or described the people of Israel as having been given new life, having been put to, to death and, and experienced a new life as in the beginning of Hosea 6. Um, I think that rhetoric, that expectation, whatever was understood, was around. I don't think it was thought of as a doctrine 
I don't think it, it was separated from the general ritual, cultic, whatever you want to call it, mythic, whatever you want to call it, expectation of a divine victory in which God would banish his enemies and would reward uh, those uh, faithful to him and would, in a sense, recreate and revivify nature. So in that sense, I think it's it, it, the, the makings of it have been around for a long time. But I think for most of biblical history, individuals did not expect to, in any sense, to come back from the dead. But there were hymnic affirmations of God's power to do that, and a few little narratives and places where it, that's exactly what seems to have happened. So is, is it a textual matter, then, that there's just not an extended discourse, but there has to be some kind of presumption? Or I, if I, to, to word it the way you put it earlier, is could we ask if ninth century or 8th century prophets, when they talked about the day of Yahweh, the day of judgment— did they kind of presume there was something beyond these things or that these things pointed? Or uh, do you think they just had monolithic ideas about there's just judgment, death, and that's it? I don't think they were profoundly or, or seriously invested in the question of individual, uh, the individual surviving death. I think they thought the world would be in accordance with what God wants. On the other hand, they also have a belief, it's very pervasive, that what God wants is life, not death. And the pursuing the way of the Lord leads to life and not death. Uh, the book of Proverbs, which may be later than that, but the book of Proverbs, time and again, promises life to those who pursue wisdom and live in accordance with wisdom. And for that matter, death to those who go the way of folly and immorality. So what do they mean by life there? They may just mean a long life and you die at a ripe old age. You die fulfilled uh, as opposed to the unfulfilled life. Uh, but when you mix that constant rhetoric, or whatever you want to call it, that language of the promise of life with uh, increasing apocalyptic expectations of God's victory over the anti-godly forces, then it's hard to see how you wouldn't have resurrection of the dead emerging as an expectation for the end time. Now, again, we don't want to overgeneralize because there are plenty of Jews in the 2nd, 1st century uh, BCE, 1st century CE, whatever, who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. There was, there was Sadducees, you know that from the New Testament elsewhere. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. There's not some necessary belief, some necessary logic that everybody, because of X, Y, and Z existing in the Hebrew Bible, has to believe in the resurrection of the dead. That, that was never the case. Uh, and sometimes people say, well, it emerged in the Maccabean period because the martyrs were loyal and faithful to God, and yet they died. So we sort of have to have a consolation prize. We have an embarrassment, and we have to somehow other plug the hole that's been opened up. Uh, but it's funny that people, uh, the Sadducees don't feel, seem to have felt a need to plug that hole. And the, uh, the uh, Ben Sirah, who was a little earlier than that, uh, in the book of Ecclesiasticus, as the Catholics call it, uh, early 2nd uh, century BCE, uh, he doesn't seem to have any problem at all with, with the notion of a promise extending across the generations without a, a corresponding belief in the resurrection of individuals in any given generation. In other words, the old pattern does seem to have stayed around, but a new pattern that affirms resurrection appeared, and eventually in rabbinic Judaism and in Christianity, that pattern uh, triumphs, that new pattern triumphs. That's another myth that you didn't ask me, that, can I bust a myth that you didn't ask me? Another myth I often run into is uh, uh, that Judaism doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
Resurrection is a Christian idea. Judaism doesn't believe in it. That's a very common uh, 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 myth. Uh, it partly has to do with liberal Judaism, with reform and conservative and reconstructionist Judaism playing down the, the language of resurrection or changing in the traditional prayer book the language so it does not actually talk about the resurrection of the dead, but talks about God's preservation of life or God being on the side of life or God, you know, uh, animating uh, everything. Uh, it partly has to do with the notion that uh, most people, when they hear the term resurrection, they think of the resurrection of Jesus and the notion of a general resurrection of the dead, which was around in Judaism before Jesus' time and is around in Judaism to today, and it doesn't necessarily occur to them. Uh, so you, you, and then, and then there's the more general idea that people have that Judaism is a religion of deeds, not creeds, and so resurrection is a creed, it's a belief, it's a, it's a doctrine. So of course we don't have that. Uh, all this I think is wrong. The truth is, early rabbinic Judaism formalized the resurrection of the dead as a necessary doctrine for inclusion in the community. And we see this as early as the Mishnah, as early as it, it, it formalized as such as early as 200 of the Common Era, although obviously it's been around for a couple hundred years by the time that happens. So there certainly historically has been, and for very traditional Jews there is to this day, a belief in the resurrection of the dead as a necessary belief and as, as a major part of the traditional liturgy uh, for weekdays and Sabbaths and festivals. What, what, uh, just maybe a, a quick last question here. What lines of continuity and discontinuity do you see uh, between the Christian uh, story and be uh, belief in the resurrection of Jesus and what you see in the Hebrew Bible? Well, uh, I mean, to the extent that the uh, resurrection of the dead is thought of as uh, one of the uh, events that occur at the end of time when God finally triumphs, and that's why I have the subtitle, The Ultimate Victory of the God of Life. When the God of Life finally triumphs, to the extent to which resurrection is thought of as a major part of that, then the early Christian uh, notion that Jesus was resurrected from the dead could be seen as a kind of, it's sort of like D-Day. You know, the, the, the war in, in, in Europe is not over yet, uh, but the Allies have landed at Normandy, and so it'll be another, uh, uh, I don't know, a year or so, or a little less than that, till we have uh, the E-Day, Victory in Europe Day. It's kind of like that. I think it's th thought of as an earnest, as the anticipation of the end times, and, and corresponds with the general New Testament uh, apocalyptic uh, framework and the notion of Jesus as uh, heralding the, as eschatological prophet, uh, heralding the end time uh, and bringing about the end time. And so they think of his own death and resurrection as an active symbol, symbolization or actualization of, uh, of what's about to come. So I, I don't think that's surprising. People who, people who think that the... Uh, that uh, there will be a resurrection of the dead uh, at the end time, if they also think the end time is upon them, think the kingdom of God is upon them, then they're going to be looking for signs for that uh, in their own world. Well, thank you very much for spending all this time with us, giving us some enjoyable stories and uh, making us all feel better about our typos and our books. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. I always enjoy your questions. They're very astute and very helpful. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.